When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slate abc. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of 10th of December, George Saunders' book of short stories. I'm Dan Coyce, the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. And joining me from the New York City office is uh, David Hagland, the editor of Browbeat. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. And we are retaping this podcast, in fact, two weeks after we did it the first time because it turned out that our studio equipment failed and our amazing observations were never recorded. So this is sort of a situation worthy of a George Saunders story. We're trying to reach back and recreate the amazing experience that was that audiobook club. And unfortunately, we're doing it without Megan O'Rourke, who joined us last time, but who cannot make it this time. So, David, you'll be Megan and David. Oh, good. That make me sound smarter. Yeah, and I'll be Dan. Um, just let us know, you know, with like subtle gradations of pitch in your voice as to when – no, no, we're not going to do that. Well, the good news is we will now have a totally fresh, different conversation where we occasionally refer back to a conversation that you, the listener, never heard. But anyways, thank you for joining me. And as in all of our audiobook clubs, we recommend that you listen to us after you read the book because we're going to be discussing many of the stories in 10th of December in great detail. 10th of December collects brand new stories by George Saunders. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. He's a much beloved short story writer. The book became a somewhat unexpected bestseller recently, this spring. It's the subject of a great deal of adoring media coverage, including a New York Times Magazine profile that called it the best book you'll read this year. Now, that's a little unexpected because Saunders' writing has always been a little bit on the weird and, I thought, uncommercial side. He writes short stories, for starters, which typically, traditionally, don't sell. And he writes in a gently postmodern vein. He's infatuated with the language and mores of corporate-branded America. Many of his characters play artificial roles of various kinds. There are futuristic elements to some of the stories. So we'll get to the individual stories in 10th of December shortly. But first, I wanted to ask you, David— are you surprised that George Saunders finally broke through? I am both surprised and not surprised. I think that, like you said, short stories often don't sell. His writing is a little bit weird. So those are hurdles he had to clear. On the other hand, he's very lovable and he's very smart. And he's smart about things that lots of people care about and talk about. And in some ways, the media coverage felt belated. I also think it helps that he writes... Some very good nonfiction. So some people have come to him 
that way and have seen his name and maybe become somewhat familiar with him. And I think these stories, perhaps more than his earlier work, have a, a kind of uplifting quality taken as a whole, and perhaps that's helping as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about that uplifting quality if this conversation is anything like the last one. But one thing that you just said that I thought was really interesting is that he writes about things that people care about. And I think that's really true. You know, the the stuff that he writes about, the way that it feels like society is sort of careening out of control or the the sort of different poses that we all have to adopt in the different worlds we live in, they do feel very much like things that are – just sort of percolating in the back of my mind all the time, you know, and I sort of think of these stories, you know, in the mode that we work in today, I sort of think of these stories as very shareable, right? You know, if if one of these stories was a thing that just appeared on the internet, everyone you know would tweet it immediately because it would so be immediately relevant to what we're dealing with every day. Yeah, and some of those stories were things that appeared on the internet and that did happen. So right. I'm thinking sure. in particular of Escape from Spiderhead, I remember when that was published in The New Yorker, not so much because I remember opening up the magazine at home, but because I kept seeing it you know, shared on Facebook and, and Twitter, Yeah, partly for exactly those reasons. It's a story that's about pharmaceuticals. It's about what chemicals do to our brains and how we're learning more and more how to manipulate our emotions and our experiences. And this is a little bit scary. And here's a story that kind of imagines the scariest form of that by turning it into an experiment that some sort of organization is conducting on, you know, poor saps who are manipulated this way and that by these chemicals injected into their bloodstreams. Right. So let's talk about that story. As, as you say, it's set in like a research facility called Spiderhead. And the narrator is a research subject who is part of this long extended study, or he's a study subject for many, many studies of different drugs. And he wears a little pack on him that's a drip that constantly can feed different combinations of drugs into his system while someone observes him in different scenarios. And in this particular story, he's given a drug that simulates love, not just lust, though lust is part of it, but just pure overwhelming infatuation, love, and lust all wrapped up into one package for the person he's in the room with. And they put him in a room with a woman. She's given the drug too, and they immediately fall into this feverish coupling. And he also gets – what's the name of the other drug that he gets? The ones that help his language. Yeah, the language – the ones that pep up his language centers, Verbalouse. In fact, I think there are a couple, right? There's both Verbalouse and there's another one that I – mean, one of them helps him speak clearly. The other one prompts him to speak freely. Right. So it's a very thoroughly imagined story. And you know, the reason that he's given the chemicals to make him speak clearly and freely is because they're recording you know, all of his experiences and they want him to describe it in the most vivid terms possible. So, for instance, after he's you know given the chemical to make him fall in love, he says, for me, the feeling was approximately astonishment at the dawning realization that this woman was being created in real time directly from my own mind per my deepest longings. Finally, after all these years, was my thought, I had found the precise arrangement of body, face, mind that personified all that was desirable. The taste of her mouth, the look of that halo of blondish hair, spread out around her cherubic yet naughty-looking face. She was beneath me now, legs way up, even not to be crude or dishonor the exalted feelings I was experiencing. The sensations her vagina was producing along the length of my thrusting <laughs> penis were precisely those I had always hungered for, though I had never before this instant realized that I so ardently hungered for them. His language gets more and more 
engaged and ornate. And the infatuation, the perfection that he feels in this moment is so thorough that then when the drip is turned off, and there's a great just bit of comedy when it's turned off and then his interaction becomes, you know, I was definitely still feeling love for her. Well, why not? We had just fucked three times. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Saunders does this amazing thing with language throughout the collection where he's so conscious of its gradations and he manages to create such distinct characters using, you know, the language that those characters would use. And then he also manipulates it in an interesting way. So both in this story, there's another one that's set at kind of a um, medieval times sort of establishment and a character take something that makes him think that he's back in those times and then start speaking in kind of heightened Renaissance language. Right. It's a really kind of fun technique because it makes the book itself so much fun to read. You know, in this story in particular, in Escape from Spiderhead, the the conflict in the story comes about after he's given this love drug with two different women. And it turns out that one of the things that they need to test for is whether there are any residual effects of this drug, which is to say, does he feel any particular specific affection for these women after the drug has worn off? And the horrible way that they test it is that they give him the option of himself ordering that these women be given this horrible third drug called Darkenflox that creates this unbelievable depression and misery on the part of the person you give it to. And by seeing whether he's willing to give the drug to these women as opposed to to other random women, they're seeing, well, has any of this love, this quote-unquote love that he once felt – been retained by his system. And so the this vision of love is a purely chemical process. I mean, is a rough one. It's a harsh satirical vision of the way that pharmaceutical companies regulate human emotions. But at the same time, there is this uplifting sense to the story because he resists. Like many George Saunders characters, he resists this. He doesn't want to give the women darkened flocks. He doesn't want to be part of this study. And even though he's been doing these studies for years and years, it seems, he has great rapport with his researcher. Um, he rebels and resists, although in this case, the form of the rebellion is that he commits suicide to avoid hurting someone, to avoid being a person who kills people. Right. Even though he is, in some sense, already a person who kills people, because this whole uh, experiment, the reason that he's the subject of it is it's a punishment. He's a prisoner of some kind. Right. And there are references to you know the crimes that have put both him and, and these women uh, in this situation. And, and I think that conclusion, while, you know, earned by Saunders, it doesn't feel cheap by any means. It's such a dark story that to end with a note of affirmative human empathy doesn't seem wrong. But it is something that happens repeatedly throughout the collection to the extent that maybe by the last time it happens, it does start to feel expected, predictable. Well, this is something that we talked about a lot last time, but I want to talk about it again because I think it's an interesting point. You know, the Escape from Spiderhead was one of my favorite stories in the book. And one of the reasons it was one of my favorite stories is because that ending felt, while it had the uplift of him refusing to harm, in the end, it's still a really dark ending because, I mean, he's literally committing suicide to avoid doing this. And it really reminded me of the endings of sort of like, you know, great classic sci-fi stories that would have appeared in like Amazing Tales in the 1960s. Um, It had that kind of feeling to it as opposed to a lot of the other stories in the book, which had 
endings which were which were uplift without even like a hint of darkness without any edge at all and i think that you and i felt differently about some of those stories and let's talk about the first one in the book victory lap which i know is one that you found really fascinating yeah i loved that story and it is another example of this because it's it's two uh, kids to i think they're freshmen or sophomores they're in high sophomores school. they're specifically sophomores yeah. sophomores in high school and Again, Saunders does this wonderful job of rendering these characters through their their language and specifically, in this case, their internal monologues. And the girl is sort of has a romantic streak and is sort of imagining the men that she hopes to meet someday and so on. And then the boy is fairly tightly wound. He has very controlling parents. And what happens in the story is a third character, a tempted kidnapper, this sort of horrible man bursts in and takes her from her home and the boy is watching. He's her next door neighbor and has to struggle in his mind for you know a fairly short uh, instant with what he's going to do. Right, because he's been almost trained by his parents to just stay out of things. They're very yeah. concerned with his future and they've laid down a very specific set of laws and rules for the way he should behave and the the way he should handle himself in ways that, will, that are very familiar in Saunders' stories. Many characters in Saunders' stories have very specific sets of rules that they are constantly pushing up against and trying to figure out whether this is the time that they should break those rules. And for this guy, this character, this kid, he struggles with whether this is the time he should break those rules or whether he should go with what his upbringing tells him he should do, which is even though he sees her struggling with her kidnapper, he thinks he probably ought to just turn around and walk right back into the house and just not concern himself with something that isn't his problem. Yeah, it's essentially a battle between you know nature and nurture or you know instinct and instruction. Right. He's not supposed to do this according to everything he's learned and yet then it just happens. In fact, the way that uh it's described in the story is it it says uh you know there's a dash from one paragraph and it says then he was running across right. the lawn. Oh god, it's like he didn't consciously decide. It was just he was struggling with this and then he did it. Right. And there's this um sequence on page 17 where he's actually thinking about these rules as he sees it happening. And just by watching it, he knows that he's already, like, breaking rules. And so it's on page 17. He says, In his chest, Kyle felt the many directives, major and minor, he was right now violating. He was on the deck shoeless, on the deck shirtless, was outside when a stranger was near, had engaged with that stranger. Last week, Sean Ball had brought a wig to school to more effectively mimic the way Bev Mirren chewed her hair when nervous. Kyle had briefly considered intervening. At evening meeting, Mom had said that she considered Kyle's decision not to intervene judicious. Dad had said, that was none of your business. You could have been badly hurt. Mom had said, think of all the resources we've invested in you, beloved only. Dad had said, I know we sometimes strike you as strict, but you are literally all we have. Right. And one of the things that strikes me about this story about Escape from Spiderhead and also about the title story, which we'll discuss in a bit, is that the character that Saunders mostly focuses on is the one who then makes this morally upstanding uh, decision in a moment of crisis. Right. These parents could have been characters instead. The man who kidnaps the girl does briefly become, you know, a, a character. You do get his thoughts, but but it's a 
within the world of the story, it's it's sort of a small portion. Oh yeah, I didn't even remember that until you just said it. Actually. Yeah, I, I had kind of forgotten. <laughs> I was looking over it again. Like, oh yeah, there's his sort of internal monologue. He's right. surprised when uh, what happens is the boy whose name is Kyle, you know, bashes his head in, and suddenly he's on the ground, and he thinks what happened. And you know, Escape from Spiderhead, the man who is running the experiment, you know, he also would be an interesting character. But these are not the protagonists of these stories. That was my general impression when I read the collection the first time. After we spoke, I did go back and look, and there are some stories that sort of take a different pattern or a different path. And one of them is a story that, that you love that I liked less uh, called The Semplica Girl Diaries. Yes, we'll talk about The Semplica Girl Diaries in just one second. But first, I want to uh, thank our sponsor and let everyone know that the Audiobook Club is now sponsored by Audible.com, which is very, very exciting. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now, or the one that you use to listen to our imaginary podcast that never happened, your imaginary iPhone. I think that that also has audible.com. They have a special offer for audiobook club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you'll get one free book of your choice. Just uh, visit the special URL that we have for this offer. It is audiblepodcast.com slash SlateABC. They have everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. We like to recommend a book, and specifically, when we can, we like to recommend our next audiobook club selection, which is The Interestings by Meg Wolitzer. And they have it. So you can listen to Jen Tullock read The Interestings at Audible with your free book. You can join us next month to hear us discuss it. If you join up, your membership also includes a free subscription to the either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try and thank them for their support of the audiobook club. Use our URL so they know that you are thanking them. It's once again, audiblepodcast.com slash Slate ABC. All right, so let's talk the Simplica Girl Diaries because, yes, I love this story. And one of the things I loved about it was the unresolved note of its ending. But I really love the whole conceit of it and the way that it is put together. The story takes place. It is literally the diary of a sort of middle-aged dad in a sort of middle-class, lower-middle-class family, a family that over the course of the story begins to get a little bit more lower class as they run into severe financial difficulties. And it takes place in a world basically exactly like our own. It's not one of the stories that has sort of overt science fictional elements, uh, as many of the other ones do, except for one just little thing that is different between their world and ours, which is just that in their world, uh, in their America, if you have a lot of wealth and status, you display it by buying third world women and stringing them up in your front yard through microfilaments that run through their brains. I mean, it's such an absurd uh, <laughs> image. And, you know, it's one of my questions about this story and I guess about – maybe about Saunders' technique more generally. It's so interesting to me that he would um, dramatize a moral conflict that in its general nature is not unlike the ones – we deal with every day, right. really. You know, when when you buy, say, an Apple product, and you know, you know, meaning an, an iPhone or what have you, and think about, oh, you know, who are the the people making this? Possibly in a factory in China, possibly in conditions that I would not accept if I were to face them full on, but which I generally ignore. Here, Saunders 
takes a, a situation that, you know, is once again about sort of affluence and comfort and and then, you know, the work that goes into making wealthier people happy and just puts it right in your face and makes it seem absurd. It's a really unusual approach. In some ways, right. you would expect him to do the opposite to make it seem less obvious. So right. But it makes you know. it so overt, like so absurdly overt that it drove home to me how much in the forefront these issues probably should be for everyone. I mean, it's we should be thinking about these issues the way that we think about these simpler girls when we read this story, that it's obviously horrifying what they're doing. And it's completely reprehensible that even this ordinary guy who we come to like, or at least who I came to like in the story, just for his funny, simple, very yearning voice. But I, at the same time, couldn't stop thinking, well, this is just terrible. And I mean, it drove home that that is, in fact, how we probably should be thinking of these issues all the time. That should be how we think of the the horrible Bangladeshi sweatshops where all our sweat socks are made. Right. And instead of, you know, a character who faces a moral crisis and then is led by instinct to do the right thing, in this story, you know, we get a character who accepts that this is the way things are and seems okay with it and rationalizes, you know, this order of things, you know, so he says that, well, you know, they come from these poor countries. This is an opportunity for them to come to this better place. And, you know, it's really it doesn't really hurt. They have this way of doing it so that, you know, the microfilament doesn't bother them and, right. and so on. They make friends with each other. They bond and everyone else has them. And, part, you know, the story of the story is that this family gets a small windfall and some of that money goes toward Simplica girls, which they've never had before and which their children have always wanted. And all the other families in their neighborhood and their children's friends' parents have them. And so this is a great thing for this family. This is like the triumph of this family when they get these couple of Simplica girls. But then their daughter begins to get very nervous and worried about them. And she eventually, she is the character, though she's not the voice character in the story. She is the character who, because of a crisis of conscience or a sudden a sudden change of heart does the right thing, the right thing by our standards, which is that she frees them. But in the world of this story, this is completely the wrong thing. And in fact, it is going to send this family into financial ruin. It is going to destroy them because they become liable for the costs of the Semplica girls. And um, the father bemoans what happened and and he can't believe what has befallen his family. But yes, for the whole of the story, we're given this thing that in the world of the story is just the way that things are and and he can justify it in any number of different ways that are not that different than the ways we justify our iPhones or our socks. There's one section in the story that I wanted to read because this to me was sort of the core of why this story really struck me, I think, the most of any of the stories in this book. And it has to do with the voice of the guy and how much he wants things for the people he loves. And it's a wanting that even though even though he's a somewhat absurd and foolish character, or maybe because he's a somewhat absurd and foolish character, and even though the things that he wants are in many cases obscene, I really related to him because I I have had these similar feelings too about the things that I want for my children. This is a section of the story that is that just begins note to self. And it is um, as things are going a little bit better and they've gotten their Semplica girls and he realizes that this could be the first step into making everything better for his family and for himself. He gives himself this note to self. Note to self. Try to extend positive feelings associated with scratch-off win into all areas of life. Be bigger presence at work. Race up ladder, joyfully, with smile on face. Get raise. Get in best shape of life. Start dressing nicer. 
learn guitar, make point of noticing beauty of world? Why not educate self, re, birds, flowers, trees, constellations, become true citizen of natural world, walk around neighborhood with kids, patiently teaching kids names of birds, flowers, etc., etc.? Why not take kids to Europe? Kids have never been, have never, in Alps, had hot chocolate in Mountain Cafe, served by kindly white-haired innkeeper, who finds them so sophisticated-slash-friendly relative to usual snotty-slash-rich American kids, who always ignore his pretty-but-crippled daughter with braids, that he shows them secret hiking path to incredible glade, kids frolic in glade, sit with crippled pretty girl on grass, later say it was most beautiful day of their lives. Keep in touch with crippled girl via email. We arrange surgery here for her. Surgeon so touched he agrees to do surgery for free. She's on front page of our paper. We are on front page of their paper in Alps. Ha ha. Just happy. Hence these fantastical speculations. You know, that is a, a great moment. And part of what it highlights, I think, is how intelligently Saunders thinks about money. So that a story like this could be a satire of the rich and say, oh, you know, the rich people in, in this you know, imagined version of our reality can afford these Semplica girls and are happy to have them and, you know, the poor are more virtuous. It's not like that, right? Because right. he aspires to what they have. At the same time, he also sees that uh, money can actually give someone the sort of freedom and room and space to to think about these questions, right? To have these impulses that can be beaten out of someone by sort of a daily degradation of, of poverty and so on. So I don't think he idealizes, you know, anyone on the social scale, but he also doesn't say, well, you know, it, it's purely uh, one's own temperament and some people are good and some people are bad and, and money doesn't affect that. He sees that money does affect our kind of moral impulses, um, but not in simple ways. Right. There's that amazing quote from that New York Times magazine profile of him. You know, he's, they're talking about what life was like for him in the period when Saunders himself just didn't have any money before he really was a writer of any of any note, before he had written very many stories at all. And they quote this essay that he wrote several years ago for The New Yorker called Chicago Christmas 1984, where he talks about that time. And he, he wrote, finally, in terms of money, I got it. Money forestalled disgrace. And for so many characters in this book and for the Semplica Girls character in particular, that's how he thinks of what money can do for him. It's not just just that he wants things, though he wants things, but he feels that money in the world that he lives in could be ennobling and that if you don't have it, you never have any chance to become the man that perhaps you should have been all along. Right. I mean one story we didn't discuss last time that I really like and which increasingly is one of my favorite in the collection is called Home. And it's another one that highlights this distinction because it's about a veteran who has come back from, I believe, the war in Iraq. Uh, there's this kind of running thing about how there are two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. But he comes home and his his mother is about to be evicted. You know, she's in horrible financial straits. His sister has married someone very wealthy and he goes over to her house and overhears uh, her in-laws talking about you know, the kind of charitable work they would like to do and the great charitable work that some of their friends have done. Uh, so once again, and you know, they seem maybe a bit fatuous and perhaps we would say, oh, well, they're not actually good people. They just – but, you know, the truth is that they are enabled to do this sort of um, good work in the world potentially. And in the meantime, you know, her mother's uh, – his and her mother's life has been – you know, looks as though it's been ruined by poverty. 
We talked about this a little bit before we started recording today. You have this interesting connection to Saunders through one of these stories, specifically Exhortation, which I think is a really interesting, very short story. It's one of the shortest pieces in the book. And it epitomizes this interest I feel like Saunders has. I think of him sort of as like one of the, our great writers of middle managers. Tell us about that story and what it was that – what role – an organization that you once worked for may have had in its creation. So I used to work for a place called Penn American Center, which is a, a nonprofit. It's an organization of writers devoted to free expression and to uh, international fellowship. And one of the campaigns Penn has had recently is called Reckoning with Torture. And it's all about facing up to what the United States has done in terms of torturing and detaining prisoners in Guantanamo and elsewhere. And uh, we would bring writers together and have them read documents that the ACLU had obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. And Saunders is one of the writers who participated in that. And he he read this, you know, really moving and heartbreaking uh, story about a, a German man who was detained by the U.S. government for years. He had done nothing wrong. And he really wanted to write about that. I asked him, I wanted to put together a collection of, of writers responding to these documents and he worked for a while on something that, you know, the way he described it was a bit like this story exhortation. I don't know for sure that that's where this came from but basically it imagines, you know, the middle manager like you said who has to, you know, inspire his men to carry out something horrible like the torture of prisoners and, you know, sort of exhorts them the way a middle manager would exhort anyone to do any number of things you know, including good things and to say, you know, look, we need to meet our targets, you know, look at so-and-so, he's doing such a good job. Uh, but it all of this becomes horrifying when the ultimate goal is something morally repulsive. Right. And it's revealed very slowly over the course of – I guess not slowly because it's only an eight-page story, but it's revealed gradually over the course of this story. You know, at first it reads exactly like any divisional director who is emailing everyone about their March performance stats. And he's got little cutesy exclamation points and parentheses and little jokes. Uh, did you cash your last paycheck? I know I did. Ha, ha, ha. And he's talking about great experiences he's had with his kids. But it, yeah, over the course of the story, it becomes apparent in extremely coded, veiled language, never explicitly, that something horrible is what they're doing in room six in their job. And – it's left to our imaginations to fill in all of the details because everything is presented in this very bureaucratic slash chummy middle managery language. But it's evident by the end of the story that this is the way that a person who is in charge of making something horrible happen every day inspires the people underneath him and the way that the fear that they are inspiring and the people they torture sneaks its way into his own language is really pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's another great example of Saunders' way with language. I think it's less memorable in terms of its characters or in terms of that character. Right. And this does get back to what we were discussing with uh, the Victory Lap, the first story, is that, I mean, for me, the most memorable stories in this collection, the ones that really kind of pulled me in, were those ones where there was a moral crisis that, you know, some central protagonist responded to beautifully as one would hope they would. You know, when I looked back at the book, I realized not every story followed that pattern. It was really just that there were a handful of really important ones that took this shape and that those are the ones that I kind of remembered when I put the book down. Escape from Spiderhead is another one. And then the last story in the collection, 
which is called 10th of December, it's the title story, is also like this. And you love this story. You know, I, I, I do. I did. I, I loved it the first time I read it. And, and, you know, you and Megan and I talked about it last time. And you guys were both much more down on this story. I'm really down on I remain down on the story, yes. Yeah, I, I have to say <laughs> you, you guys made a pretty good case against that. And I remember you in particular read – let me just briefly describe what it is. It's a, There's two central characters. There's an older man who is dying of cancer and has decided to end his life. And he has has walked out into a you know a cold, a bitterly cold day, and is going to kill himself. And then there's again a young boy who, in this case, is sort of off on a walk and lost in his thoughts, and then sees the man, or sees his coat, and decides he's going to go off and find out what's wrong and and maybe help this man. And then the man ends up helping the boy, and you know it does have this very kind of uplifting. Ending, and I remember last time you read a passage that has got to be one of the weakest passages in the book. Right. It's a place where Saunders's gift for language, which is immense, seems to fail him. You know, the problem I had with the story is that I felt like the story itself is so what's the right way to put it? It's so unsurprisingly good. Its heart is so unsurprisingly in the right place that I never felt any level of suspense or engagement or worry about these characters because – and part of that was all wrapped up in in having read this book. It was so evidently clear that George Saunders is a wonderful human being. And so this section is on page 235 and it's after the kid has fallen in the lake and the man – finds him and he is struggling against the cold and trying to figure out what to do. He's like dragging the kid along and helping him along and and he this is his internal monologue and he thinks what to do when he got there. Get kid out of pond, get kid moving, force walk kid through woods across soccer fields, one of the houses on pool. If nobody home, pile kid into Nissan, crank up heater, drive to Our Lady of Sorrows, urgent care, fastest route to urgent care, 50 yards to the trailhead, 20 yards to the trailhead. Thank you, God, for my strength. This section in particular, it just reminded me, you know, it might, it could have been in like a James Patterson book. The language is slightly sharper, but what's actually happening in this moment is so doggedly straightforward that it made me feel like I was sort of being played. Like there's – of course I would like the story because everyone in it is so good and its author is so evidently wonderful. You know, there's this image I have of Saunders now thanks to this Times Magazine piece, which is – it's not his fault for being like this. But this is the way I think of him is like he's basically like our our living saint of literature. He just seems like the greatest guy. But to me, that made this story feel like oppressively good and nice in a way that I didn't want to feel and that not all the stories in this book made me feel. Yeah, I mean, that was the the case that, you know, I I can't say if it totally won me over, but at least weakened my affection for the story because I, I do think there's something to that. And, you know, we talked last time about uh, Saunders, the person, and Saunders, the writer. And, and Megan used to edit him in the, at the New Yorker and had a wonderful experience with him. I, you know, interacted with him, you know, to a much lesser extent at Penn. Likewise, just had a wonderful impression of him. I've, I've only heard good things, and I think that's all to the good. But then, when you sit down to read fiction, you do want to be surprised. You do want the writer to. Uh, be willing to go wherever his or her imagination will take him. 
especially when as with as many of these stories are meant to be i mean these stories are meant many of them to have a satirical bent you know i mean he's a very gentle satirist but he clearly feels a great deal of moral outrage about the way the world is going and in some of the stories that's expressed by alluding to or dealing head on or in some sideways manner with those horrors but then in some stories it's expressed only as the sort of the purest optimism the sense that well even if the world is going to hell human nature in and of itself will triumph over that i mean you know and when i say this out loud i feel like a real dick like but like and maybe i should stop trying to obviously definitely i should tra- stop trying to force a writer as good and as valuable and as amazing as george saunders into like my stupid preconceived notion of what his fiction could be but i just know from some of the stories that he can be so amazingly witheringly smart and satiric about the things that are most important in this world that i don't necessarily also need a story from him that is about that people are nice and can save each other if they fall into a lake the Semphical girl diaries is a good example of the moral impulse in that story is clear it cannot be more clear and yet if that story works as well as you think it does. It works because you, ha- <laughs> because you have a central character who you can empathize with and, and by, understand. And who, and who you're there for, you yourself, the reader, is implicated. Right. And then there are moments where, for instance, uh, the story that I mentioned before called Home about the returning soldier, which I think on this score is a bit more ambiguous than than certainly 10th of December, the last story. Yeah. It does end with the scene that looks like it's going to be horrifying. He actually appears to be on the verge of murdering his family. And then uh, he sees his mom struggle to get up. And, and here's the very short last paragraph. It says, Then suddenly something softened in me, maybe at the sight of Ma so weak, and I dropped my head and waded all docile into that crowd of know-nothings, thinking... Okay, okay, you sent me, now bring me back. Find some way to bring me back, you fuckers, or you are the sorriest bunch of bastards the world has ever known. I find that ending very powerful, and especially reading it again now out loud. But it is also a very explicit statement of what this story is, and and in some ways it maybe even what Saunders wants the story to accomplish. You know, that this is a story about a returning soldier, and we have sent all of these men and women out into the world and then they've had to go experience horrible things and we are not taking enough care of them when they get back. That's what the story is about. And, you know, there are times I think maybe, as much as I really like this book and think that Saunders is an incredible writer, there are times when his moral impulses are very clear in a way that maybe weakens the stories. They're explicit. You know, they become the text of the story as opposed to as opposed to subtext, I guess. You know, they become the reason we're in that story as opposed to the characters or the language or the other things that to me at least make stories great and important. And I think that there are a lot of readers who will really disagree with that. And, you know, your feelings about 10th of December have shifted a little bit, but your first impulse and the first impulse of many, many, many people about that story was to completely open-heartedly love it and specifically love it for the message about humanity that it delivers. And it's quite churlish of me really 
to demand anything else of a story than that. And in the end, I think talking to you guys last time really softened me toward those stories quite a bit and that it made me realize, well, look, the guy can do both these things. He can deliver withering satire with a very specific artful way of of delivering it. And that's amazing. No one does that better than him. But he can also provide these somewhat moralistic, open-hearted tales that really move people and if the guy can do both of those things well in ways that really affect readers of different types, who am I to say, well, they shouldn't both be in the book? Of course they should both be in the book. And I should just, like, deal with it. Yeah, and I think that even something corny when done really well can be great. And I'm just now realizing the parallel between 10th of December and It's a Wonderful Life. Right. Which is also about a man who wants to kill himself and then is persuaded not to because he wants to help people. And I love that movie. So... You know, if Saunders can write a story as good as that, then I will love him for it. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining me for this. And uh, I'm really glad that we had this conversation again. I learned brand new things. And uh, I hope that our listeners don't mind too much missing the last one because this one was pretty great as well. Thank you again and uh, have a good day. Thanks, Dan. A program note. Our next audiobook club is about Meg Wolitzer's novel, The Interestings, a big, fat novel of our time, which follows six kids who meet at a summer arts camp in the 1970s all the way into the 21st century. So read it or listen to it on Audible. And then join us for our discussion on July 12th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page. You can leave a comment on the episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And please, please, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. You can just search for the Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For David Hagland, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.